podcast we have my new friend pastor sam crabtree and sam is someone that i've known from afar for a long time because he's um, been uh, on staff for many years at bethlehem baptist church bethlehem baptist church is a church in minneapolis that has had a very significant impact on my life through the ministry of john piper and bethlehem baptist is the church where uh, john used to be the lead pastor and Sam served alongside him for many years. And uh, he's written a couple books for Crossway that I've really, really appreciated. Um, one called Practicing Affirmation and a newer one called Practicing Thankfulness. And so I'm looking forward to diving into these today with you, Sam. But thanks for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, it's a privilege. As I was uh, doing a few chores just before... Uh, zooming in with you, I I was feeling what a privilege it is to have this opportunity to try to represent these important things for God's honor and for the sake of his people. This is a real privilege. So thanks for for the invitation. Yeah. Amen. Sam, why don't you just give us a 30,000 foot view of your life and anything you want to share just to help us get to know you better. (laughs) Uh, I'm wondering what would help the Vine family (laughs) to, to know about me? What would they care about? Uh, uh, I'm, I was a farm kid, third born of seven children. Uh, I'm married to Vicki. Uh, we were married in, uh, 1973, have two living children. We had two children die. We have six grandchildren. Uh, I have loved basketball for decades. I played basketball for 65 years. Mm. Uh, I I took a sabbatical one time from the church. They granted me a sabbatical. One of the goals, I had a physical goal for each sabbatical as well as spiritual goals and project goals. And one of the goals was to make 100 free throws in a row. And uh, God permitted me to make 130 free throws in a row. So I'm a free throw shooter. Sam, we have a uh, lot in common. We'll get into that later. <laughs> so are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm right-handed. <laughs> My re- uh, just real quick, my record is 127. Well, look at there. Wow. <laughs> wow. Look anyway, at that. So yeah. Anyway, I don't want to sidetrack us, but. Uh, well, you got there earlier than I did because I didn't make 130 till I was in my 60s. So. Uh, okay. This is when I was in high school. You you got to jump on me. You've got well, decades past that. To hear so. that you were playing basketball for 65 years is way better than me because I wouldn't dare touch it. My body just hurts too uh, much uh, when I it, try to play. It's. um. It's been a great joy, and I think in my earlier days, it was tempting me as an idol. Interesting. And so it's a good thing that um, now God has, through my knees, said, you're done. Yep. You're done playing full court yep. with the yep. college kids. Yep. <laughs> and uh, all, all I have left is a, an old man's fast waddle, and nobody wants to play, <laughs> have him on the team for defense. So uh, I... I uh, am very grateful for my wife, still introducing myself to your people here. Yeah, and, great. Uh, many people are interested to know that I have written her a daily note for, oh man, um, close to 40 years, I guess. Wow. She's got boxes full of them. And it's good for me yes. to write those. It's been good for her to write those. Uh, I've been pastoring for almost 40 years. Before that, I was a public school teacher. What did you and, teach? Uh, I taught sixth grade across wow. the curriculum for seven years. Wow. My wife is a very accomplished pianist and okay. teaches piano. She has a studio here in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And uh, and I'm also privileged to have many of the same friends you've got. Yes. Many overlapping relationships. Amen. Well, Sam, just in what you shared there, I, I think we could build a podcast beyond anything that I... Um, prepared to want to chat with you about but you said sam that you lost two kids my word um is that something we could chat about at all sure can you just tell us a little of that story yeah yeah after uh we had two we were raising two daughters 
And when the youngest one was 15, uh, we conceived. And, uh, and while I was in Russia, I was invited to preach in Russia for about a month and uh, took my entire family with. And while we were there, my wife miscarried. Mm. And so the baby was, was maybe um, an inch and a half or two inches long. And uh, one of the surprises was, and I, I grieved, I can remember walking through the Russian woods with hot tears running down my face because of the disappointment. I was anticipating the opportunity to disciple another offspring. Mm-hmm. And uh, what surprised me was the immediate credibility I had with two groups of people. First was the other people who've lost children. Yes. Who had miscarriage. Suddenly they just came out of the woods. And uh, we transported the remains back to the United States and we had a funeral here. And about 125 people came to this funeral for a baby that they had never met and right. had never breathed one breath of air. Right. And there was weeping all over the house, including one man who, who uh, hugged me very tight, sobbing, saying, thank you for this memorial service. It was for my boy. He had had twins 20 some years earlier and one of them didn't make it. Mm. And um, so that I had instant credibility with, with people who've lost a child. And the other group was, uh, I, uh, it just was a subjective sense that I had when I was preaching in Russia, that there was a little bit of a, um, yeah, you like God and you're grateful to God because you're a rich American. You know, everything goes well in America and you got all these perks and privileges as Americans. And, and so of course you like God because you live on easy street. But uh, when it was announced that my wife was in the hospital and she just lost a baby, right? Uh, suddenly there was a quiet attentiveness in the house when I preached that hadn't been there in the earlier part of the trip. Now that's a subjective thing, but um, people uh, listened differently when they thought that there was a Job-like experience for this guy who's talking to them. It's not all, uh, you know, moving smooth down them bodacious streets. It's, it's, there's pain. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Yeah. And uh, so do you still love God uh, when he takes away what he's given? So, um, so then about a year later, we lost another child the same way. And um, so we, we, uh, we have named them. I will say for the, for the benefit of those who've maybe had miscarriages and they wonder, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to have a funeral or what are we, what are we supposed to do with one of our children, with Aaron? We, uh, we did have a memorial service and we had a printed program and we bought a grave plot and we put uh, a memorial stone there and, and all that. And with the next one, a year later, Jordan, when Jordan died, we didn't do any of that. For one thing, um, there weren't remains. Yeah. If, I don't mean to be too graphic and you can edit this out if you want, but no, uh, it just was kind of like pudding. No, and, I understand. Uh, and so we didn't gather any remains and we didn't do a memorial service and we didn't do a grave plot and we didn't do a memorial stone. And that's been a benefit because now when uh, young couples come to me and say, what are we supposed to do? I can just say, do whatever is helpful, whatever it feels like would minister to your heart and to the hearts of others around you. There's not a one size fits all thing. I don't find it in the Bible that you should do step A and step B and step C and step D. Uh you just figure out what would help you, and and that's that's fine. The grace yeah. of God will go with you in 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 whatever options you have the latitude to pick from. How how when you when you think back on your grief process, um, we have folks at the Vine that have had multiple miscarriages. My wife has had a miscarriage. Um, I'm thinking of specific folks that I know have really, really had to walk that painful road. As you reflect on your, your grieving, um, what do you remember and what was maybe most helpful and what was most unhelpful for those in the body of Christ coming around you? Well, I do remember for some reason that the tears, as I mentioned, when I was walking through the Russian woods felt hot. I don't know why, but it just, it just seemed like they were burning. And there was a great sense of disappointment that now I will, 
I will not be permitted to disciple this little one because I loved raising our kids. I yeah. just enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, the spiritual dimensions of it, the learning together. Um, I mean, with our, our two daughters, I decided early on, I wanted them to be comfortable in the kitchen. And one way to be comfortable is to not be afraid to try things. And one way to learn to try things is to have an adult in there who's trying things with you. So I just put on an apron and we pulled up one chair on either side of me and stepped up to the counter and we had never made an apple pie. We're going to make an apple pie. I love it. And, and I loved it. And I would take my daughters to the grocery store and, and we were playful. And as our girls got up into the grade school years, uh, I can remember that they would love to, um, they would bring home from the library we didn't have DVDs back in those days. We had we had the old VHS tracks, and they would bring home Anne of Green Gables to watch their dad cry because there's a couple of <laughs> a couple of sequences in there where I'm very tenderized. Yes, yes. And yes. Um, so I loved raising kids, and I was when so when we lost Aaron and Jordan, I was very disappointed that we wouldn't have the opportunity to raise these children this way. Um, but I, I will say this, that the, the grief um, is never totally gone. I feel very tenderized uh, when someone else loses a child. I, a, a woman in our small group lost a baby. And uh, when I saw her in the hospital, I was speechless. I was, you know, crying. Yeah. I'm yeah. getting tenderized right now thinking about it. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't totally go away, but it doesn't paralyze either there's a grace of god that says even in the midst of of this grace you can function you can make the decisions you need to make i remember being in the hospital room with daryl and michelle when they lost twins who were full term mm. and or nearly full term and uh, we held them the boys as as their bodies grew cold and Daryl and Michelle were were weeping, of course, but they were also making totally sensible decisions as the medical staff would come in and out of the room and ask about this or that or the other thing. And so I asked them, what, what is helping you be so sensible in the midst of such deep grief? And um, they immediately took me to Psalm 16 without blinking. They took me to Psalm 16 about, uh, you've shown me the path of life. There's joy in your presence. And and pleasures forevermore. Mm -hmm. That's where all of this is going. Yeah. And so when there's deep loss, I mean, Job said the, the Lord has given, he lost 10 children yeah. and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. Yeah. That's where yeah. it's going to end up. Yeah. One day I will see his infinite wisdom, his perfect plan, his impeccable timing. And I will exult. I will just say, oh, that not only is acceptable, that was perfect. You yeah. were doing exactly what would be best. Yeah. Amen. So hard to make sense of in this life, but that's why we are people of hope, right? People that have faith and trust that, you know, it's, I think in calamities like this, I always gravitate toward just the promise of Revelation 21 that you know, behold, I'm making all things new. Yep. You know, our eschatology uh, really finds um, power in these moments. I think I think that's why, though God has not told us all the details of the future, he's told us enough so that we'll hang on during the present moments. Amen. Amen. Well, you, you hinted at something else too, Sam, that I, I think I'd really love to explore because I think this is vital for the discipleship of um, you and I and for our people, but just the unique nature of the power of evangelism through our suffering. And just thinking about what you said about how there was a unique gravitas when you're preaching to a group of Russian people, a unique weightiness when they hear that it isn't Disneyland for Christians um, in America. Can you unpack that a little more, Sam? I just love to hear you reflect on that because I've seen that true in my life, but I'd love to hear, um, if you, you agree with that or what you think about that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, um, as you might suspect, as a as a compatriot of John Piper and Justin Taylor and and uh, Dustin Schrammick and other guys that you mentioned in our off the air conversation earlier yeah. on, I'm a Christian hedonist, which means I I do believe that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. So evangelism is as much about satisfaction in God as it is about something creedal, though doctrinal truth is essential, and there are realities not to be denied, or else a person really isn't a believer yet. If they deny certain things, like they deny the resurrection of Jesus or something, then no, they've not come to faith yet. But I have found it very helpful to point out that I'm trying to offer immeasurable riches of grace forever to them. Mm -hmm. Joy at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. That's where this is ending up. So when, when Jesus' brother James wrote, um, count it all joy, brothers, joy, when you encounter these many trials, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience, let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfectly complete, lacking nothing. Um, the trials are productive. So I believe in a God, this is evangelism, now I'm answering yeah. your evangelism question. Yeah. I believe in a God who's producing in my suffering. Uh, Romans 5 says the same thing, that, that these difficulties in your life produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Produces, produces, produces. Or Paul wrote about, after, after he gave this whole long list of, you know, he'd been shipwrecked, and he'd been snake bitten, he'd been beaten, and all imprisoned, and all the things that went wrong. He says, these light, momentary afflictions, right. <laughs> light, yeah. momentary, Amen. life a long string of them, these light momentary afflictions are producing for you an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So our, our suffering is productive. It's making us, it's developing us, it's shaping us. It's causing us to become something we are not yet. And so part of coming to Christ is coming to this God who in the midst of our difficulties is not done. I think a lot of people look away from God. They may try God. They maybe dip their toe in the Christian water and then they get smacked and they have, they lose a baby or they get cancer or they get fired or they have financial pressure or you name whatever the difficulty is. They have anguish and they think, well, I tried Christianity. God didn't bless me. So I'm out of here. He's either, he's either inept Right. He, he can't fix things or he doesn't care. He right. doesn't love me. He's either powerless or, or he's cruel. Right. And that's a mistake because God is never done. So if, you, if we look to the example of Joseph, whose brothers threw him in a pit, Amen. when those brothers threw him in a pit, God's not done with Joseph or the brothers. Right. In fact, by throwing Joseph in a pit, they are, unwittingly cooperating with God who is saving them at that moment. Isn't that fascinating? It's wonderful. And when, when they then take him out of the pit and they sell him into slavery, God's not done. And when Joseph is framed by Potiphar's wife, God's not done. Right. And when Joseph goes to prison for years and the cupbearer forgets to tell the Pharaoh that this guy can interpret dreams. He's languishes in prison another two couple years, years in prison. Yeah, two whole years. Yeah. Like what's what's with God's program here? Exactly. Uh, God's not done. And then and then there's seven years of uh, good times and then seven years of bad times. So that um, elsewhere in the scripture it says, when he summoned, he is God. When he summoned a famine. And broke all supply of bread. He sent Joseph ahead of them. So as, as you know, in, in Genesis 50, when Joseph is finally reunited with his brothers who can't find any bread anywhere in the country. Right. He says, you, you meant this for my harm. But God meant, same word, meant this for our good that many might be, be saved. saved. Amen. So throw me in a pit, God is saving. Sell me in slavery, God is saving. Frame me. God is saving. Throw me in jail. God is saving. God is never, and I want to emphasize that word, never done with the suffering of a believer. Right. Ever. 
He's always got more coming, and it's always good. Yeah, I, I was struck. I'm reading through Genesis, obviously. Well, no, I just finished because it's February, but like Bible reading plan, beginning of the year, and we, you know, finished up Genesis. And I've always remembered Genesis 50, where Joseph said what you just quoted, God meant it, or you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. But I never saw it in chapter 45 until just, I don't know why, because I've read through the Bible a lot, but I just, you know, you just missed it. Um, where G, where Joseph is saying to his brothers in verse seven, and God sent me before you. You know, he doesn't mention how you threw me in a pit. Well, that happened too. He didn't mention it. He just has the sovereign view, you know, the the, the temporal second uh, secondary cause, causation or whatever you want to call it, was the brothers, but he's looking at the primary cause. And he says it twice, verse five, um, and do not be distressed or angry as he's talking to his brothers because they're really scared that he's going to kill them because he's in power uh, with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land these two years and yet um, are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And it says it again, verse seven, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Um, so he says it a third time, verse eight. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he says it three times. I mean, we, we teach uh, hermeneutics on a, on a basic level around here. And we always say, you got to pay attention to repeated words. And he says it there three times in three verses. Um, that's powerful. Like God is the one who is acting in our suffering. And in one sense, that's so hard to make sense of because when we're in the depths of our suffering, we want to look to God like the psalmist and say, how in the world can this be happening to me? And we've got friends um, that just lost a 12-year-old and it, they're in right now they're in the fog of grief. And, and as, as we both know, now is not the time to preach the Joseph sermon to them. Um, but... My word, uh, like, that's so hard to hear, but it's so comforting, is it not? Because what if God's not sovereign, what does that leave us with? And well, and it makes a difference in our evangelistic conversations, which is what you brought up a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. that I'm not trying to press you. I'm not trying to ram my religion down your throat or, or argue into you into a corner or try to squeeze you into some creedal mode where you can check all the boxes and, and, you know, before you believe, go through confirmation class and, and cross all the T's and dot all the I's, though there are many important T's and I's in, in the doctrinal truth that eventually they must come to believe and not deny. But I'm, I'm offering you pleasures forevermore, that this God is productive always without exception in the lives of those who love him. So get in on this. Lay up treasure in heaven where moth yeah. and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Yep. Yeah. So what would you say then, Sam, to someone who says, well, that just sounds like you're in it for yourself? Uh, I would say that that's partially true. I am in it for myself. I mean, that's why when, when Jesus said, don't lay up treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupt, he didn't put a period there and say, that's it. That's all I've got to say on treasure. Don't right. lay it up. Nope. He's saying, but do lay up treasure for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust don't corrupt and thieves don't break through and steal. Paul picks up that same thought in, in the love chapter where he says, you know, if I, if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I had all wisdom so I could solve all mysteries and I had such faith I could tell a mountain, go jump in a lake and I could give my body to be burned and didn't have love, what would it profit me? Exactly. He's saying there is a legitimate profit motive. Now, the legitimacy comes from the fact that what profits me doesn't rob from anyone else. What profits me is enriching others. That's what profits me. Mm -hmm. If my joy is the joy of others and the glory of God, uh, God gets more glory. Others are edified from my influence. and, And I get tickled pink. Because right. I get the privilege of, of being an agent of that, being an instrument in his hand for that. So it is in my self-interest, but self-interest is not necessarily selfishness. Amen. Yeah, so what Sam is hinting at here is a book, just for the Vine family to hear this, 
Um, John Piper wrote a book called Desiring God that I read in college. It's probably one of the most influential books in my whole life. I'd commend it to all of us to read. Um, and, and the basic thesis of the book is God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Like I am a satisfaction seeker. I don't seek it in cars or sex or relationships or money or whatever. I seek it in God. I'm seeking my satisfaction in God. And when I do that, God is glorified and I get the joy. And so you guys have heard me say on Sunday morning, you heard me say in passing all the time, um, for the sake of God's glory and our joy. That's one of my mantras. And that's where I get that from. I believe the Bible really teaches that. And and Pastor John showed that to me from the scriptures. Um, you were going to say something, Sam? Well, just to amplify what you're saying, in total agreement with what you're saying, that um, satisfaction in God is to be preferred because it's preferable. It's better. God is more satisfying and I've loved basketball for years, but I'm losing basketball. Yeah. It's it's wood, hay, and stubble. Um, this old body can't can't uh, keep up anymore. We're wasting so away. If I, if I attach all my affections to something that cannot keep me satisfied forever, right? Much less increasing pleasure forever, right? Which is what I think the Bible argues for. Um, it's like you want. When I was in junior high, I mean, I thought it's really not fair of all these adults who always put a limit on the amount of candy you can eat. So one time I I had a little discretionary money and I bought a bag of jelly beans. I don't know if it was a one pound bag or a two pound bag, but it was a it was a bag of jelly beans. And I walked out to the edge of town. I sat under a tree and I thought nobody's going to tell me what to do or not do here. I'm going to eat these jelly beans till they're gone. And I did. Pleasure forevermore with jelly beans, right? No way. <laughs> Vomiting. I mean, before I got to the end of the bag, it seemed like a chore to finish them off. Yeah. And to this day, I don't eat very many jelly beans. <laughs> I I keep some in my office because I like kids to come and visit me and I have something for the kids to enjoy there. But those jelly beans don't tempt me at all. Right. Um, they don't satisfy right. anymore. Right. But God will continue to reveal new depths and heights of satisfaction forever. Right. He's going to surprise us forever. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like when unbelievers can, coming full circle to the evangelism as it's related to suffering, when unbelievers can see that things are taken away from us too, and that my joy, though it's not a superficial, everything's going to be okay and I never cry stoicism or something. But yeah, I can be honest about my feelings, but at the end of the day, my hope is not in my wife. My hope is not in my kids or my job or my money or whatever. Like I, I, you know, I can, I can still move on because my hope is in God. Like that's in my mind, a powerful reason to believe apologetic. That's, that's what makes us unique. I think that when we maintain our love for Jesus in the midst of extreme calamity. Um, that's, that's, that's powerful. And in some ways I think, I don't know if I said it or someone else said it, I'm just parroting them, but like your moment of greatest suffering might be your moment of greatest evangelism as well. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I believe, and I've interviewed numbers of people on this question. I've said, uh, bring to your mind now, you don't have to tell me the details, but bring to your mind now the greatest suffering that you've experienced. And I give them a second to rifle through their mental files and come up with what's the top one or two things that are just, just really painful experiences that they've had. Okay, now step two. Now name, list consciously benefits that have come to you through that suffering. And they ponder and think of, okay, well, I, you know, I discovered this, I became that, it refined me in these ways, it humbled me, you know, whatever the benefits were that came to them through this suffering. So then the third step is, would you say that those benefits were, were, you know, piddly little benefits, or were they pretty substantial, pretty solid, good benefits that were delivered to you through that adversity that you faced? Oh, no, they were very good. They were, they were important. They were life-shaping. All right. Fourth and final step, then, 
Are you glad that that bad happened to you? Are you grateful? And there's like a dawning that like, I guess I am. I guess I am thankful that that terrible, horrible, no good, very bad thing happened to me because of the riches that it brought to me, how it enriched me, it shaped me, it refined me, it grew me up. Uh, I made discoveries that I wouldn't have made without this difficulty. Just as, you know, Paul said to the Corinthians that, you know, when you suffer, you you learn to have compassion on those who are suffering in the way that you suffered. So if you hadn't suffered, you wouldn't have that compassion. Amen. Yeah, Sam, that's really, really good. I'm so thankful for this conversation. Not not at all what I was planning on us talking about, but it's it's yeah, really, really yeah, it really, really um and we'll get to hopefully some things I wanted to talk to you about, but I think it is important to note just by way of reminder, especially for guys like me that really love to communicate truth, that this kind of conversation we're having um, is very, very good and very, very true according to the scriptures. Probably not something that we need to bring up with folks when they're experiencing acute suffering in the short mm-hmm. term. Right. That's right. You know, like... Yep. Um, Job's friends were silent for a week. Seven days. For a week, right. And then they got into trouble, real kind of big trouble, <laughs> we see at the end of the book of Job, when they when they tried vehemently to explain Job's suffering to him, right? Because um, they got it wrong. Yep. And, and I think that's something really dangerous when we minister to one another in the midst of our suffering. Um, you know, who can make sense of suffering? You know, and the Bible doesn't ever, you know, the Bible gives reasons, and, but we might not always know how those reasons actually connect to my direct experience. Um, now, in some sense, we, you know, it's, of course, it's all true that I believe that God works together all things to good for those who love him and called according to his purpose, like without question. Um, but when you get into more specifics of, well, God is doing this to test me. Well, in a sense, maybe yes. In a sense, I'm not really sure exactly what God is doing. Um, But all that to say is when we try to explain people's suffering, um, especially when they're really, really hurting, um, I think of an example um, of just a friend of mine who's lost his mother when he was a teenager, and he had people from maybe a different theological camp come to him and say, in, in, in maybe indirect, more nice way than this, but like, you know, she died because, you, you know, you guys just didn't pray with enough faith. And that kind of thing where you're explaining somebody's suffering, especially when they're really hurting, um, is just potentially very problematic. Well, especially when I think that particular explanation is false. Right, right, exactly. Well, Sam, um, this has been great. Um, can you give us a few more minutes to talk about your books? Well, we'll try. <laughs> I'll start with this. Um, I read your book, Practicing Affirmation, a few years ago. And um, I don't know if this is like a backwards compliment. I, I, I didn't have, I don't, how do I say this? It wasn't at the top of my reading list. And I think someone just told me how good it was. But I was like, eh, practicing affirmation, whatever. Um, sounds pretty simple. <laughs> Do I really need to read this? Well, I dove in, and I couldn't put it down. And I have found myself saying a few times over the years, um, especially for pastors or those that are trying to create, or leaders, I would just say leaders in general, um, which all of us are leaders in some sense, probably. Man, it's absolutely vital. Um I was blown away by how much I was underlining and um, Mm -hmm. how much I needed to read that book as a leader. Um, Just tell us, Sam, why you wrote a whole book on the need to have affirmation of others be part of our um, daily existence. Yeah. Yeah. Affirmation of others. uh, Subtitle that actually I wanted it on the cover, but Crossway had other plans. And so I had to defer to their superior wisdom is the, um, the God centered praise of those who are not God. Hmm. 
So why did I write it is your question. I wrote it for two main reasons. One is I had talked about these things primarily in pre-marriage classes for a number of years, I don't know, 20 years or something like that. And people would say, well, is there anything written about this that, you know, could I read more about this? And I, I kind of shrug my shoulder and say, well, there might be, you know, a smattering here and a smattering there, but I'm not aware of anybody who's collected it all and, and tried to make one argument, a, a book length argument to motivate us to, to praise, to give, to commend the commendable, I call it. Yes. And uh, so they wanted a book. And second, I need it. Mm-hmm. I needed to dive in and think about this so that I have a fear. I have a concern that I become uh, a cranky old curmudgeon as I get older. Yes. And I don't want that. I don't want to be Ebenezer Scrooge. I don't, I don't want to be the miser, the, the grump. Um, and so I needed to think about it. And as I thought more about it, there was more there to think about. I don't, I don't know what your experience has been in writing, but my experience is sometimes I start writing. I think this is important. This is really important. I got to get this down and I yep. just do a brain dump. Yep. And then when I, you know, finally I take a breath, I step back and maybe it's a day later or whatever, but I look at, it and I think really, nobody's going to be interested in this. This is not that really not that helpful. So I walk away from it and come back to it then later, maybe a week later, maybe a year later and think, no, this is important. I need to, I need to sharpen the stuff that's messy, clear up the stuff that's foggy. There's some connecting lines I need to make. There's some transitions that, I, that are, would, would be helpful. There's some questions that are provoked by this that I need to answer. There's some cross-references from the Bible that would be key. There's some errors to not be made. This really is important. And so I wrote it for me. I wanted to think more clearly about praise because there's something, I do believe that our culture has a plague of self-esteem. And maybe that's what was going through your mind, Zach, when you when you thought, you know, really a book on affirmation. I don't know if I need this. You know, what? It's just more pablum from our culture, and sure. and and you can do whatever you can conceive and believe you can achieve. You know that kind yeah. of stuff, which is patently false. In fact, let me insert right here. The first year that he was president, Barack Obama did a nationwide broadcast for high schoolers in which he basically said that you can you can achieve whatever you set your mind to look at me. I'm the first black president. And uh, and the moment he said that, I said to the TV where he was speaking, I said, that's not true. Right. That's not true. Just because you want to be president doesn't mean you can be. Right. You just defeated a whole bunch of people who ran for president with all their might. Right. And they raised up millions of dollars and they hired people and they went for it with everything they had. They can't be president. Right. You and I will never be NBA basketball players. You know, that's it's just right. Not going to happen. <laughs> that same week, Adrian Peterson, who was playing for the Minnesota Vikings back then. So he was a hometown athlete. Yep. And he had set the NFL uh, record for rushing yards. Right. And he did a local program at a high school, a high school gymnasium full of students, where he told them basically the same thing. If you set your mind to it, you can accomplish anything you set out to to accomplish. And he was on the evening news um, sports cast. And I I looked at the TV and I said, well, then don't you want a Super Bowl ring, Adrian? Mm Because he doesn't have one. Yeah. He still doesn't have one. Right. Years later. Right. So the idea you can have whatever you want is baloney. So I think back to why did I write this book, Practicing Affirmation, there is a plague of self-esteem in our culture that uh, you should esteem yourself and you should think more highly of yourself and and all that kind of stuff. And and I think um, that's the main ingredient of sin is is too much self-esteem. Go to our prisons. They're full of self-esteem. Guys right. who think of nothing but themselves. Right. Your, your purse is mine because right. I want it. Right. And um, so it's not about that. It's about recognizing that God is doing wonderful things all over all the time. Right. And he gets more honor from us if we see it and call it out. If the heavens are declaring the glory of God, uh, he gets more glory if I look out the window and say, wow, God, you did that. Spectacular. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Or if I see him at work in my children 
and they do something that's gracious, I think, oh, God is at work in you, developing in you these character qualities, growing you up. Fantastic. He gets honor. Their morale is built. I get to commend a commendable quality. And the more we commend things, the more likely they're going to be repeated. Uh, I feel like I'm not wasting my time quibbling about stuff and being a, a petty naysayer. Um, there's just so many benefits that come. So why did I write the book? I wrote it to help people um, with their relationships. You know, in my years, decades of, of pastoring, I have never seen a couple divorce who kept up practicing affirmation with each other. Mm. Always when there's a divorce, one of the things that happened is affirmation went away. Yeah, They stopped commending each other for the good things that they did. Yeah. They stopped saying thank you and I like that and good job and well done. Yep. They just didn't do it. So I'm trying to help relationships that I care about. I'm like you. I pastor a people, which is not just a job. It's a love affair with a people. Yep. I love that you call the Vine Church the Vine family. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Mm -hmm. um, and and I want to help these people thrive in their relationships in a God-centered way. So the main thing to commend about each other isn't that, you know, well, you look cute or, or uh, Zach, I like the way you've styled your hair there. <laughs> or lack of hair. <laughs> <laughs> but when I see character qualities, when I see somebody do something that is generous or wise or courageous, and I commend that, and I say, well, okay, we had a, we had a staff meeting uh, less than a week ago in which I said that, that Jesus is um, remarkably available. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he, he made himself available, lowered himself, emptied himself, became obedient even unto death in his servant role, and therefore God also highly exalted him. He became available to us to, to save us, and he's available to every one of us right now in prayer. He's really available. And so here was my bridge. Lulu, who's a gal on our staff, is like Jesus in her availability. She'll drop what she's doing to help you out, to help anybody out with just about anything, just about any time. Yeah. She is so available. Okay. When I do it that way, I'm commending Christ Jesus for a quality and I'm commending Lulu for imitating Jesus in that yeah, way. I see the spirit alive in you. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's not just a copycat thing that she looks at him and says, well, he wears sandals, so I'll wear sandals. Yes. But it's his spirit living in her. And now she's starting to look like, I mean, Ephesians 5 says, um, we should be like our father as children, be like your father who is yeah. God. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of questions. Let me ask it like this, Sam. Let's take a group of people, paint a picture for us, two pictures, in fact. You got a group of people that have never read the Bible and have never read your book about the necessity of affirmation for the sake of healthy community. And then you've got a group of people that have read the Bible and have read your book that helps us see what the Bible commends in terms of us commending one another. What are those what are those different groups of people look like? How would you compare and contrast those two groups of people? Uh, well, I would compare them in that we're all objects of grace. I mean, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said that, that the sun rises on the good and on the evil. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. So so God is doing good, a certain kind of good common grace yes. to everyone all the time. And those people are still made in the image of God, even if they don't believe. And um, God is still working out his good plan through them, even if they are desperately wicked. Sure. Um, even if they are, you know, Jesus was crucified by certain people who were obscenely wicked. And yet it was through the foreknowledge and plan of God that all that happened. So um, they're still made in the image of God. They are still image bearers. But a difference is that um, you said when you first read Practicing Affirmation that you were discovering that this is vital. I think that's the word you use. Yeah. This is vital. I would say it's non-optional mm -hmm. uh, and it's universal that 
you can decide, I'm not going to be a person who does much affirming. I'm just not into that. It's not my thing. I'm not good at it. I'm too bashful or whatever. Okay. You can opt to take that road, but you can't opt for the consequences that will come from whether you affirm or don't affirm. There are outcomes from it. That's just as saying. in the yeah. book, Practicing Thankfulness, I argue the same thing, that, that giving thanks is pivotal. Giving, giving thanks will bring certain results in your life, and thanklessness is also causal. It will cause certain things. There's a parting of the ways. Your soul swivels right. towards either greater maturity or less maturity, based on whether you decide I'm, I am going to be grateful. I'm going to give thanks for this but or not. Yeah. But Sam, I'm just, I'm trying to hear from you. Like, what do you imagine or what do you see are the differences between a community that really practices affirmation and a community that just doesn't like, what's the fruit of it is what I'm yeah. trying to help people see. Yeah. Well, for one thing, if you affirm things in God centered ways, God gets more glory. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, um, morale is lifted. Mm-hmm. So when you when you commend uh, someone, they usually feel better about you and they feel better about life and they think, well, maybe I'm not a complete waste. I'm, you know, I can do some good and somebody appreciates me. Um, it helps. It helps the whole morale of the environment, whether it's a home or an office setting or a classroom or a church or whatever. The, everybody knows, oh, we affirm things around here. A third thing that it does is it holds up certain specific things that should be valued things that are commendable. When, when uh, one of my little grandsons voluntarily shares a toy with his brother, and I say, wow, you're being generous. God is the most generous being in existence. And when you're generous, you're being like God in that way. Okay, I'm holding up generosity as that. Oh, that's a good thing. That's, oh, you can, you can get praised around here for being generous. So it's more likely that there will be generosity that will happen in a community where that's happening. Well, and you're teaching him who God is. Exactly. That's the way to do it in a in a God-centered way mm-hmm. so that it's not just, well, you're a generous person and God never, never comes up. And I'm not trying to shame anyone who makes compliments without specifically sure. mentioning God. I'm just sure. saying there's a better way to do it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways that I find myself talking about it a lot as I think about this in my own life is also a community that practices affirmation regularly is probably also a community that can practice correction because there's the whole analogy of deposits and withdrawals. Yep. And anytime I correct, it's a withdrawal. It's, it's hard. It's uh, emotionally taxing on a relationship. But if I just think about my own marriage, if my wife and I, you know, I've got 22 in a and a half, almost 23 years of life with my wife. And over the years, we've tried to practice affirmation. And so I've got this database of affirmation that I can draw upon going, I, I, you know, I really do know that she loves me. I've got plenty of evidence that she's on my team. And so when she inevitably has to come and give a word of correction, which I need because I've got blinders, I'm drawing upon that bank account of affirmation so I'm not as prone to defensiveness as I was when we were married for two or three years because I didn't have that massive database or massive bank account of affirmation that I've had over the years now. And so I just think about that translates to church culture or work culture or any kind of culture. Would you agree with that, Sam? You gain a hearing. I should be interviewing you. You've got good (laughs) answers here. Yeah, I you know about um, sociologists tell us that about eighty five percent of teenagers at some point or other they go through something that they call blackout, hmm. where they stop listening to their parents. And hmm. the same thing that the parents are trying to tell the teenager, that teenager won't hear it from them, but they'll hear it from their track coach or from their camp counselor, or from their youth pastor, or from Uncle Charlie, or from other people, but not their parents. Right. One of the ways that parents can keep that door open. I don't think blackout has to happen. I don't think it's essential. I don't think it's a must. One way to keep that open is you keep the affirmations flowing. Mm -hmm. So in the book, I tell the story, true story of uh, one time I was speaking to a a group of campus crusade staff. Um, They're now called crew. 
in Indiana, I believe it was. And, and I uh, was speaking on the subject of practicing affirmation and we came to a break. And after the break, I noticed that a fellow who had been sitting right down in the front was not there, which is fine. I went on to the next subject in the next session and blah, blah, blah. At lunch, he approached me and he said, I don't know if you noticed, but I wasn't at your second session. I said, well, I didn't happen to notice, but you know, it's fine. I'm assuming you had something to do. He said, well, as a matter of fact, let me tell you what I was doing. <clears throat> During that talk about practicing affirmation and how you can gain a hearing and you can lose a hearing with people, but if you're always nitpicking and complaining, he said, I saw myself in that with my son. Hmm. I have a 14 year old son. And uh, I would estimate that we haven't spoken much to each other for about two years. He wow. avoids me. Wow. And I'm seeing that I can understand why he avoids me because I'm always on his case. Did mm. you put your bike away? Did you line up your shoes? You got your homework done? Don't look at your mother that way. I mean, I just am always on his case about things. And so during the break, I went to the phone. This was in the days before everybody had a cell phone. I went, I called home and I asked if I could speak to my son and he came to the phone and I said, the only reason I'm calling is I just want to tell you that I'm glad you're my son. Mm. You're a good son. Mm. When I tell you to do stuff, you do it and, and you have skills and I can see God is developing in you. And I just wanted you to know, I'm happy you're my son. Well, he started to talk to me and he talked for 45 minutes and I wasn't going to hang up. Yeah. Amen. And so that illustrates to me the power that you're asking about, Zach, of what happens in the community when there is affirmation. It opens up channels of communication. And here's a here's a 14-year-old who hadn't talked to his dad for two years. And now he's he's talking to Blue Streak, updating his dad and all the activities going on in his life. And and uh, and his dad is drinking it in. Yep. The blackout is over based on just a few little affirmations. Well, yeah. if you make it a life pattern, right. As, right? as you talked about, Zach, with your wife, you've got this, you've got this big, huge bucket now of affirmations so that if you had to say something to your wife that, you know, maybe she had a little tone of voice there right. or an, an attitude towards somebody, um, it's not like you're always constantly picking on her. She right. knows you're in her corner. I think that's what happened in part with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus and his entourage go into the temple there in John 8. And there, the leaders of the church have caught this woman in adultery. And I don't know why they haven't caught the man, but they've got the woman there. And uh, they ask, they, they say to Jesus as a test, you know, the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say, hotshot? And he stoops and writes something. And uh, haven't you wondered what he wrote? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He wrote something and he stood up and he, he says, um, oh, let those of you who are perfect throw the first stone. And then he stoops and he writes some more. Now, uh, I pictured when I was a kid in junior high, maybe that was like a Western, a Western movie where, you know, he's, there's a gunfight on Main Street and and Jesus scratches a line in the sand and you know a double dog dare you to step across this line right but uh, we don't know what he wrote but we do know that he wrote john tells us twice that he wrote now it wasn't sand they were in the temple and the temple floor is stone and it doesn't say that when the leaders of the church read it they left says when they heard it they departed one by one starting with the oldest so what does a finger writing in stone sound like hmm. i don't know but we we do have another instance of a finger writing in stone in the bible it's in exodus right. when the finger of god writes on the stone tablets and i and since the gospel of john is trying to demonstrate to us that jesus is the the christ so that we might believe in him. Uh, I can easily imagine what's happening there is Jesus is writing with his finger in stone on the temple floor. And uh, I don't know what he was writing. Still doesn't tell us, but it tells us, tells us that he did. Well, they all leave. So then he says to the woman caught in adultery, where are your accusers? She says, I don't have any. 
And he says, neither do I condemn you, but he doesn't put a period there and walk away. Now go and sin no more. So he does accuse her of being a sinner, but first he shows he's in her corner. Right. And I think that's getting at your your question, Zach, about what happens in a community where there is a, a diet of affirmations and commendations. That community earns the right to tell each other, now go and sin no more. Right. Knock it off. Quit it. Don't right. be this way. It's going to destroy you. Right. I, I have to believe that Jesus had her attention yep. and had solid credibility with her after he rescued her in that situation. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, Sam, you know, I, I find in my experience, um, you know, this affirmation just creates a certain type of culture that is so winsome and so, I think, antithetical to most people's maybe secular workplace or that kind of culture. Um, another thing I notice is just sometimes our hesitancy to want to do it. We'll be thinking it in our head. Like maybe there's somebody up on the platform, you know, just blessing the church with a musical gift on a Sunday morning, or you see a children's volunteer that just, you can just tell they're thriving. And you're thinking that in your head. And sometimes that just never comes out the mouth or it'll come out the mouth to somebody else. Like I'll hear from somebody, oh, have you seen so-and-so in, in the working with kids? Man, they are great. And then what I always find myself saying as I've thought about your book and, and the impact on culture is, well, have you told them that? I think you should tell them that. What is it about us that sometimes we're just reticent to go tell somebody? Well, we're busy. Yeah. That's one. Another, it maybe hasn't been modeled to us. Third, we might not think it makes that much difference mm. that, you know, uh, fourth, and this can relate to the third one is that sometimes we don't do it because we think, well, that's what they ought to be doing. The nursery workers ought to be doing a good job. Why do we need to tell them? That's mm. what's expected of them. Yeah. Well, but things that get commended are things that get repeated. Right. Yeah. That's, that really makes sense, Sam. Um, let's, let's talk about your most recent book, Practicing Thankfulness. And let me just ask you this. Um, what compelled you to want to write this? Um, I was beginning to see that it is a, a pivot point in people's lives. A lot hinges upon whether or not they become grateful. Yep. including me, yep. my own heart. And um, I saw um, theological slippage in the Christian church that was robbing God of honor as being most high God, being utterly sovereign and working all things through his infinitely wise providence. So, for example, I would see very well-intended uh, efforts to refer to texts like First Thessalonians five eighteen in everything give thanks in everything and there would be people who look at that and say yeah when you you know when you're when you're skiing down the hill and you break your right leg you can give thanks that you didn't break your left leg you know that kind <laughs> of thing. in everything give thanks yeah you know there's always a silver lining in every dark cloud and and so look for the positive in all the mess but I think that's not the whole story. And so I wanted to shine light or let light shine from Ephesians 5, 20, that, that says, always in, in everything, give thanks for everything, for everything, not just in everything, but for everything. So um, the difficult text, when, when Moses is at the burning bush and he's protesting, God wants to send him back to the Pharaoh and I don't want to go. I don't talk so good. And God says, who makes the deaf or the dumb? You think you can't talk? Who made you that way? Who makes the blind? I do. I'm the God who, who makes that. And God does not back away from his sovereignty in everything, in everything. He, he says, when you come into the land of, Can land of Canaan in, in Leviticus, and I give you that land as a possession, and you find a case of leprous disease, I put it there. Mm -hmm. 
I put that leprosy there. And we've already referred to in this conversation earlier about how he summoned the famine into Egypt that brought Joseph's brothers there. He says in Isaiah, I, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity, both. Or in Ecclesiastes 7, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So I was finding Christian people, and I maybe could put myself in that group where, where we, we, we want to give thanks to God, but not for everything. Mm -hmm. And the Bible is saying, yeah, for everything, because he's working all of it together for our good, including the calamity. Yeah. Everything. Yep. So just the posture of thanksgiving is so vital for our discipleship. Um, I see it in Ephesians 5, as you're talking about, um, as downstream from, in that context, uh, being spirit-filled, right? Um, you know, it's, that's, a under, that's an under-emphasized uh, section of the scripture that talks about what it looks like to be spirit-filled, right? Right. He, he, I mean, he starts by, you know, don't be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But, and then he mentions several things that are the indicators that you are filled with the spirit. And one of them is giving thanks always for everything. Right. That, so if you wonder, am I filled with the spirit? Well, look, are you giving thanks for everything? Yeah. If you're not giving thanks for everything, then you're not as filled with the spirit as you might think that you are. Yep. So let's close with this, Sam. Um, you know, that, that sounds hard. Help us, help us. You know what I mean? Because our lives, like, how are we in the world supposed to give thanks for COVID? You know, um, that's that's certainly under the all things heading, right? Um, like, help us emotionally uh, work through that when it's just really hard. Well, when it's hard, we just admit that it's hard. I mean, I asked our counseling pastor a number of years ago. He's now deceased, but I asked Pastor Tom. You know, we're not supposed to grumble and murmur and complain about things, but how can we ever admit that something's miserable? He just, without blinking an eye, said, go to Romans 8. It says, we, we, we suffer with all creation, the pains of childbirth mm -hmm. until now. So here's a woman in childbirth, and you say, how's it going, dear? And she's not going to say, oh, it's just wonderful. It's all breezy. <laughs> right. She's going to say, ah! Right. I'm groaning right. and we groan with her and with all creation because it does hurt. Yeah. It hurts. We're not in denial about pain, yeah. but the Bible also says that later on after she's given birth and she has the King James calls it a man child. When she has this baby, if you, you ask her, if you ask your wife, Zach, I'm guessing if you put the, the proposition to her, um, if you could avoid the pain of childbirth, but you don't get to have the children. Would she say, well, I'll take the children. Yeah. If I have to go through pain to have the children, I want the children. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, the, um, the, that's the seed of faith, that when you're in the pain, this is going to be worth it in the future in ways that I'm not sure of. So, so I don't feel like being grateful for coronavirus. Then I, I should say, okay, God, um, I admit it. I just admit it. And that's a confession. And I need to repent because I'm commanded to give thanks mm -hmm. for everything, for everything. It's a command. Yeah. So I'm not doing it. Ah, I'm wrong. Then I ask God, help me. The, the psalmist said, incline my heart. It's like God with his hand can reach down into my heart and turn some dials and flip some switches and stuff. Incline my heart so that I am thankful, that I am grateful, that I see the grace that you are bestowing upon me in this coronavirus or whatever difficulty that I'm facing. Uh, third thing I can do is I can look to models, look at other people around me who are grateful people, and I can start to amen their thankfulness. Yeah. I can, I, it's one good reason to go to prayer meetings. There's other people at those prayer meetings, they pray about things that, Oh, I didn't think about that, but that's right. good. Amen. And now I have an opportunity to say yes to the Lord about that 
thanksgiving or that prayer request, whatever the case may be. So that's a few few steps for a person to consider if they, I just don't feel thankful. I don't think a person should conclude, well, I don't feel thankful. If I say thankful, say that I'm thankful. If I say thank you to God, I'm being a, a hypocrite and I shouldn't be hypocrite. I think that's a mistake. I think that hip, hip, hypocrisy in us can be um, overcome by taking a step forward in faith that I don't feel f- grateful for coronavirus, but I want to obey God, including be thankful for coronavirus. And so thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to seek you for a more grateful heart about coronavirus. And, and incrementally, you can start to grow in your gratitude. Right. Yeah, it's really, really helpful, Sam. Like, I know that I am, there's, there's, I can already see there's ways that God has used coronavirus for my good. Um, you know, and, and I think there's a dual understanding here of like, we can grieve when people die and not be glib about that or be superficial. Um, you know, we know that's not what you're saying. And, and there's a place to be sad at the same time as being thankful. Like, so in some sense, there might be multiple emotions happening, but at the end of the day, can I believe that all of this is going to be made right someday? And ultimately it seems like that's where this is all pointing. I can be thankful because I know one day everything is going to be made right. And it's, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when, right? And so that inclines my heart more to just be like, Lord, I don't even get it right now, but I, I'm still going to give thanks. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right. That's right. And, and I have found that it's virtually impossible to be grateful at the same time that I'm being several other things like jealousy. It's hard to be jealous when I'm grateful or hard to be envious when I'm grateful, hard to be bitter, hard to be full of malice or entitled. That's right. Oh, that's a big one. That's a big spirit of entitlement. uh, The the assumption, the presumption that I deserve great blessings and benefits and privileges and advantages. That's a, that's a soul killer. And gratefulness humbles me and brings some reality and heart check into my existence so that I recognize everything that I have is a gift to me. It's given to me. I don't deserve it. Amen. Well, Sam, I'm going to let you go here. I know you got to run. But man, thank you so much. This has honestly been one of my favorite conversations we've had here on the Vine Conversations podcast. And um, I just really appreciate your wisdom. And I'm going to pray that folks pick up your books um, and just see what you have taught there from the scriptures. And hopefully our people will be blessed by it. I know I have been. So I just want to say thank you to you. Well, the privilege is mine, and I, I thank God for your ministry there and your fidelity, your faithfulness to point rigorously people to Jesus. And so keep on keeping on. <laughs>